0: Well, it is time for us to begin, so let me officially say good morning, welcome back to Sunday School. We begin a new unit today, Unit 6. And Unit 6 is going to be all about the Exodus, literally. We're going to be in the Book of Exodus from for all the next 10 lessons, and we're going to start with the birth of Moses, and we end at the end of the Book of Exodus with the inauguration of the Tabernacle on Mount Sinai. Now the Book of Exodus is an extremely key book in the Bible. So many times as we move to the rest of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, there are going to be references made back to the events that took place during the Exodus or in the book of Exodus. So this is definitely one that you want to, of course, this is always true, but definitely you want to pay attention as we move and study through the book of Exodus as we make our way through the scriptures. But of course, the other thing to note is that Exodus Exodus and its events are often portrayed in film. Uh, many of you have probably seen The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston or maybe The Prince of Egypt, that, that cartoon, or maybe other other movies based on the events of Exodus. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with a movie being made out of biblical events, but just remember they're, they're just movies. They're not inspired records. They sometimes take liberties or they, according to their medium, they need to make decisions that mean they're adding things or changing things that aren't actually in the Bible. So you want to make sure, we want to make sure that we actually know what the Bible says and that our children actually know what the Bible says and are not simply relying on cartoons. So be ready for what we encounter in the book of Exodus to maybe clash a little bit with what you see in films. And today's lesson, as I said, we're at the beginning of the book of Exodus. We're looking at how God uniquely raises up and protects Moses as a deliverer for God's people. Now this protection, strangely, it involves things like child abandonment, lies, even murder. So what is God doing in all of this, and what are we to learn from it from our lives today? Well, that's what we're going to investigate. But let's pray before we go. Our gracious God, we we thank you for your great and sovereign provision at all times. You are the King; nothing is beyond your control. And you are doing things, all things well, even if they involve terrible suffering sometimes. You know what you're doing. You have no right to question you. But Lord, help us to continue to look to you during those times, for you will bring ultimate deliverance in the right time and the right way. I pray, God, to you help me to be able to explain your word now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. I want to say a quick word about the timing of these events. I don't want to get into the whole big discussion of why there are different views, even among conservative evangelical teachers, as to the exact timing of the events of the patriarchs and the events of Exodus. But you can see from the slide before you, Answers in Genesis takes a slightly different view than, say, other people. Like if you have the MacArthur Study Bible, it has its own timeline. Again, I'm not going to go through the different details there, but just know that generally we're talking about the patriarchs, the events that we've seen in Genesis, probably taking place around 2100 to 1800 BC, and the events of Exodus and leading up to Exodus taking place more around 1500 to 1450 BC. I'm I lean more towards a a 1445 date for the Exodus. And of course, this intersects a little bit with what we saw last week in the the movie Patterns of Evidence Exodus. But if you if you took Answers to Genesis timeline, I don't I don't think that's um, I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's a bad thing. But just know that there's going to be a little bit of tentativeness with this. But certainly these things did happen in history. But moving on from the time of the patriarchs, what took place in between the time of Joseph? and the time of Moses. That's the first thing we're going to look at by looking at Exodus 1, verses 1 to 14. Now, we've got about four passages to look at today, but we're not going to spend a great deal of time on this one. But let's start just by reading Exodus 1, 1 to 14. It says, Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one, with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly, and multiplied, and became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. He said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Come, let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war they will join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh's storage cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. Now let's just notice a few details of this section as background for what we'll see later. Notice First of all, that in the years after Joseph, the people of Israel are multiplying greatly. And verse 7 is extremely emphatic of this. Notice five different descriptions, all saying the same idea Israel is growing. You think Moses is trying to make a point? But then verse 8, we have a turn in the narrative. A new king, a new Pharaoh arises over Egypt who does not know Joseph. It may be that this is not just a new thing, a new king or a new pharaoh, but actually a new dynasty, a new house of rulers in Egypt, and this one's not connected with Joseph at all. This pharaoh looks at the situation of Egypt, and he becomes afraid. He thinks, verse 10, Israel will unite with an enemy during war and destroy Egypt. And this is a big deal because, verse 9, the pharaoh says, they're actually more numerous than we are. That might be a little bit of hyperbole, but certainly there's a great amount of Israelites to the amount of Egyptians. So what is Pharaoh's strategic solution? Well, let's enslave the Israelites. Let's afflict them with hard labor, take away their wealth, take away their independence, keep strict controls on them, force them to work hard so they don't have time to think about rebellion, and so they don't multiply so much. Meanwhile, Pharaoh will have a large, a strong, if not very well motivated, workforce. And he puts them to work. But notice in verse 12, what is the unexpected result of Israel's enslavement? It doesn't stop their multiplication. They continue to multiply. They multiplied even more. And so it fills the Egyptians with dread. But there is another result, and that is this incessant hard labor makes the lives of the Hebrews, the Israelites, bitter and this is a little bit hard for us to imagine, right? We we enjoy so many liberties in America. But Israel was put into brutal slavery. Can you imagine living in that situation, especially if you were one of those who, who made the transition from being just one of the dwellers of Goshen, enjoying your time in Egypt, and suddenly you're enslaved, you and your children? And certainly there are probably some people asking, among the people of Israel, where is God? Where is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob? How could he let this happen to us? Why isn't he keeping his covenant with us? But we know, and perhaps some of them also knew and trusted, that God was indeed keeping covenant. Because, as we already saw even last week, what had God promised in Genesis 15 and elsewhere? What did God promise? He said that they would multiply. What else? He said that they would be enslaved. And he even said how long it would take place. About 400 years. They would be dwellers in a foreign land. They'd be enslaved. But God also prophesied at the end of that time, he would bring them out. He would judge their oppressors. And they would even be enriched as they leave. So, Everything is happening just as God foretold. God was keeping covenant with them, but the blessed purpose for which all these things were happening was not yet manifest. And isn't this similar to what we kept seeing throughout the book of Genesis? Why was Sarah barren? Why was Esau so wrathful against his brother Jacob? Why was Joseph enslaved and imprisoned? These were hard things, and yet God was working a great and wondrous plan Through it all, though there was suffering in the meantime, they had every reason to trust God. And of course, so do we. So Pharaoh's first stratagem of nullifying the danger of Israel, limiting Israel's growth, is to enslave everyone in cruel enslavement. But it hasn't worked. So he's going to try something else. Let's look at our next passage. Now let's look at Exodus 1, 15 to 22, and this one we'll investigate in a little bit more detail. So read along with me, starting in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra, and the other was named Pua. He said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing, and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwives can get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who was born you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. Let's make some observations on this section. Pharaoh's new approach is to act through two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pupa. He directs the two midwives, whenever they're helping a Hebrew woman to give birth, Kill the boys, let the girls live. But the midwives do not obey Pharaoh's command. Notice verse 17. It says, because they feared God, they did not obey. They let the boys live. Pharaoh confronts them over the disobedience. And the women defend themselves by responding that the Hebrew women are simply more vigorous than the Egyptian women. They're always giving birth so fast that the midwife hasn't even got there. The midwife can't do anything to the child. Notice in verses 20 to 21, it says that God blesses the midwives because of this. It even gives them households or families of their own, which have been considered a great blessing to have children, have a family as a woman. And meanwhile, the Israelites continue to multiply. The Pharaoh, seeing that this second plan has failed, he moves to plan three. His third solution for dealing with the Israelites is verse 22 let's just have all the Hebrew boys killed. Anytime you see them, whether they survive birth or not, kill the boys, allow the daughters to live. And who's responsible for carrying out this command, this third plan of Pharaoh? What would you say? Notice it says, Commanded all his people, saying, So he's brought all the Egyptians on board with this. Decree throughout the kingdom, Egyptians, if you see a Hebrew boy, grab him and throw him in the Nile. That's your obligation from Pharaoh. Kill the boys. Uh, Let's ask some questions of interpretation based on this passage. First, why does Pharaoh want to kill just the Hebrew boys? Okay, that's a good point. The boys are the ones who would grow to be future soldiers. They would be the greatest danger to the Egyptians. That's good. Why else? Right. Very good. This is the other thing to keep in mind, that Israelite culture descendants would be passed down through the male. The, if there were only female slaves, well, they would intermarry with the Egyptians. They would become concubines to the Egyptians, and eventually the Hebrew people would just disappear. But if we can just gradually get rid of the, the male influence, then we can force the, the Israelites to become Egyptians. So I think um, both what Ken said and Caleb said, they're both they're both at play here. So strategic to get rid of the boys and keep the girls. Now, another question, who exactly are these midwives? We're told that only two meet with Pharaoh, but such a burgeoning Hebrew population surely needs more than two midwives. So why does Pharaoh meet with only two? What are some possibilities? It may be that these are kind of like head midwives. There are other midwives besides them, but they're kind of the ones who set the tone. They set the agenda for the rest of the midwives. Or it may be that they were a test pair. Pharaoh had this plan. He's like, all right, I'm going to try it with you two, see how it goes. And if it works well, I'll get the other midwives. board." I think it's probably more the first, but certainly they weren't the only two midwives. Notice that they're called Hebrew midwives. Some have suggested that these women are not actually Hebrews, they're just the midwives of the Hebrews, they're actually Egyptians. This was the rabbinic tradition, even for a long time. Because it would be odd for Pharaoh to expect ethnic Hebrew midwives to betray their own people and murder boy infants. Though Egyptian midwives, they might be loyal and trusting enough to do Pharaoh's will. Moreover, it appears that Pharaoh likely intended for these murders at birth to be secret, they could be passed off as accidents. Oh, you know, just a miscarriage. And this would lessen the chance of provoking the Hebrews to rebellion. Native Egyptians are more likely to follow through on this and keep these murders a secret. However, uh, as a counter argument, some people argue that the Shifra and Puah names, they are Semitic in origin. They're not Egyptian. And so these women are indeed ethnic Hebrews. But even that's contended, so we're not entirely sure. In either case, God uses these two obedient women to sovereignly protect and preserve his people, including Moses. Now, when confronted by Pharaoh, the midwives present an excuse. But are they lying to Pharaoh? And if they are, are they justified in that lie? Now it's worth noting the passage does not actually say that they lie. It just records their excuse. And some interpreters contend that the midwives are not actually lying here; they're telling the truth. And God could have caused God could have caused the Hebrew women to bear so easily and quickly that these God-fearing midwives never even faced the choice of murdering or not murdering an infant. Uh, this would be consistent with God providing this astounding population growth. Maybe. He, Easy Hebrew births were part of that. But while the passage does not directly mention lying, it does indicate at least some level of deception toward Pharaoh because we noted verse 17 says the midwives did not do as the king commanded them. They chose to disobey because they feared God. This means that the midwives had some opportunity to obey. They could have done what Pharaoh said, but they did not choose to do so. And that's why God blesses them. So whatever this excuse is that they tell Pharaoh, it does not tell the whole truth, if it is truthful at all. The reason for the disobedience to Pharaoh is not simply quick births, but because the king's command was evil, and because the women feared God more than him. Now some have suggested, some interpreters have suggested that the midwives They purposefully delayed going to these Hebrew women in labor, and they had the people pray for quick deliveries. And so what they would be telling Pharaoh is actually true. Oh, you know, those Hebrew women, they just give birth before we get there. And they just leave out the part about saying, oh, yeah, uh, we delayed getting there, so we made sure that they always gave birth before we got there. Maybe they're not saying everything. So what they're saying is true from a certain point of view. But it might also be that they just simply lied, just simply lied to Pharaoh. And there are plenty of interpreters who say this as well. But what do we make of all this? Did they lie? Would they have been wrong to lie? And would it have been wrong if they simply decided not to give the whole truth? And we're not talking about a a non-important lie. This isn't like lying about someone's surprise birthday party. talking about the lives of thousands of Hebrew boys. What about this lie, if it is a lie? Now, these questions that I'm up here, they're not very different from that old ethical quandary, would you lie to Nazis about hiding Jews in your house? And we could take a long time to discuss all the ins and outs of that question. We're not going to do that. We don't have time to, um, to really fully explore that. But I do want to set before you two principles, two principles that I think will help you think through that question a little bit the first is, withholding part of the truth from someone is not necessarily sinful. Withholding part of the truth from someone is not necessarily sinful. This may surprise you, because sometimes you hear people say, a half-truth is a whole lie. We've got to nuance that saying a little bit. By the way, it doesn't come from the Bible. It's just something people say. Because take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. Keep your uh, finger in Exodus. But in 1 Samuel 16, just to give you the context, King Saul has disobeyed God twice in some pretty serious ways. God has announced to Saul that Saul is not going to be king anymore. God's going to take away his kingdom and give the kingdom to someone else. Now, look what happens in 1 Samuel 16, 1 4. It says, Now the Lord, and that's Yahweh, now Yahweh said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. But Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And Yahweh said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. You shall invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. Now do you see what's happened in just those few verses? Samuel is afraid. Saul will kill Samuel if Samuel goes to Bethlehem. Why would he fear this? Well, Saul, he wants to hold on to his kingship. He doesn't want any rival kings. If he knows Samuel is going to anoint a new king, he might kill Samuel. But what does God... What does our holy God command Samuel to say to Saul? Tell him going to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice. Now, is that true? Is Samuel going to Bethlehem to offer a sacrifice? Well, apparently it is. And that's why Samuel's taking a heifer. That's why he's going to invite Jesse to the sacrifice. There's going to be a sacrifice in Bethlehem. But is that the only reason that Samuel's going to Bethlehem? Is that even the main reason why Samuel's going to Bethlehem? No, it's not. Samuel doesn't give the whole reason. And he's directed by God not to do so. Now, if we try to apply that maxim, if there's a whole lie here, the problem. If we say, Samuel, you essentially are lying. What's the problem? That would make God, because he directs Samuel to say this, a liar. Go go tell this lie, Samuel. So clearly, it is not wrong to withhold part of the truth sometimes. And this is not the only place in the Scripture where we see this happen. But sometimes it is. And there needs to be a caveat to this. If withholding the truth would be truly unloving to someone, or it would be dishonoring to parents, or it would result in some other sin, you can't do it. And a verse along these lines, Proverbs 327 says, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in your power to do it. So when you have good information that withholding would be unloving to somebody, you can't hold it back. A good example of this is when Abraham neglected to share that tiny, insignificant detail. Besides Sarah being his half-sister, she is also his wife. And this got him into trouble, and got other people into trouble, Pharaoh and King Abimelech, who both thought Sarah was three, and they took her as their own wife. They would have appreciated that little bit of extra information that, by the way, she's already married, to me. So, this isn't There has to be some nuance to this. If it's unloving to withhold that information, you can't do it. But bringing this back to Exodus, maybe this is what the Hebrew midwives did. They told Pharaoh the truth, but they left out some details that they didn't have to give, and so it wasn't wrong. Now, in my opinion, it's more likely that they just lied. Eh, The way they they phrased this, oh, you know, they're just so vigorous, they're so quick, the way they say that, I don't know how you can get around that not being a lie. So we still have to ask, is is lying ever justified? If we go back to the Samuel example, okay, maybe God did tell him to lie. And maybe lying is okay. Especially if it's for a good purpose. Well, here's the second principle i want to bring before you. God's own character is the standard of what is right. God's own character is the standard of what is right. It's not simply what he commands. What he commands is based on who he is. Might it ever be right to lie? Could saving a life or saving many lives justify lying? Let's just ask. Can God lie? And Titus 1-2 is explicit in response. says, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. That's pretty clear. God cannot lie. Yet we also know from Scripture that God is all good, all just, all love, and all truth. So can lying ever be right if God cannot do it? I think the answer has to be no. Because otherwise there'd be something lacking in God. There'd be something lacking in his goodness, his justice, or his love, his truth. So if it's never good for God to lie, then why should we say it is ever good for us to lie? Doesn't the Bible say the um, doesn't the Bible emphasize again and again that God is the standard of what is right? If we go to the book of Leviticus, God keeps saying, Be holy, for I am holy. Be like me, I'm the standard. Matthew 5 48, Jesus says, You are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Ephesians 5 1, Paul says, Be imitators of God. To tell the truth is to fundamentally imitate God. Thus it is right. But telling a lie imitates whom? Satan, right? Just like Jesus says in John 8, 44. Whenever he, that is Satan, speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Lies come from Satan. Truth comes from God. Now, I know there's a lot more we can say, but I think brothers and sisters, you can save yourself uh, enrolling in a philosophy course or an ethics course when it comes to this issue of lying. It doesn't matter. Uh, I would say lying is never justified because lying is fundamentally unlike God. And you say, well, what about hiding the Jews? Uh, what would I say in that situation? I don't know. You can get creative. You can be strategic with your words. It's not like I had to tell them the whole truth. Or I have to tell him a lie. Think about how Jesus responded to tough questions in the New Testament. They'd be like, hey, do we got to pay taxes to Caesar or don't we? And then he gets them a response that's unexpected. He says, hey, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. And give to God what's God's. He was, our Lord showed great wisdom in how he responded to difficult questions. And we can do the same. But if Jesus were hiding Jews, do you think he would lie? If you want to say yes, you got to check your Christology, because Jesus is God, and God cannot lie. This is why I say lying is never justified. So bringing this back to Exodus, if the Hebrew wives, midwives, actually lied, and I think they did, they sinned. They sinned in doing so. Doesn't matter their intentions, doesn't matter a good result. Lying is always a defamation of God's character, because through lying you say, there's something good that's lacking in God. Yeah, I'm going to do this good thing here that God can't do because there's something lacking in him. The question actually arises, well, if what they did was wrong, then why does God approve them? Why does he bless them? Well, in response, I would say it's like what God does with Ahab at Jericho later. She also lies, but she also is commended in the scriptures, even for her faith. The key is, God does not commend midwives for their lie, but for their faith, demonstrated in their fundamental action of disobeying Pharaoh and letting boys live. Same with Rahab. Her fundamental righteous action was welcoming the spies and sending them out another way. When the Bible commends her, it doesn't commend her for her lie, but it commends her for welcoming the spies. Lying wasn't the righteous part. God commended these ladies for the more fundamentally righteous action that they did in each situation. So I don't think we have to say, oh, because they were blessed, God must have approved their lie. No, it doesn't follow. In fact, I think the scriptures are clear that lying is never justified because it's opposite of God's character. Now, of course, this is quite a bit of a rabbit trail. The point of this passage is not to teach us about the rightness of telling the truth and the wrongness of lying. What is The point of what we just read? What's Moses really emphasizing? What would you say? That's right, we're seeing the sovereign faithfulness of God, and especially how he is protecting his people. Whether these midwives were Egyptian or Hebrew, truthful or false, justified or unjustified, God arranges that the very people that pharaoh commissions with this undercover murder scheme they refuse to carry it out and why because just as was said god was going to remain faithful to his covenant with abraham and with israel he permits a certain amount of evil to happen to his people he allows them to be enslaved but he says i'm not going to let you get away with this one here i'm stopping you this is like balak's attempt remember balak he hires balaam To curse Israel, just like that situation, all of Pharaoh's schemes to weaken and destroy Israel, they proved to be useless, even counterproductive. And God was reminding Israel, as Moses records this, God was reminding Israel that he is always in control. He will always keep his promises, even when people directly oppose what God has said. And brothers and sisters, this is still true. God is still God. Whether people disobey, they partly obey and compromise, or they simply do what's right, God's good purposes will come to pass on behalf of his people. That's good news, because that means that you can trust God. But you may have noticed Pharaoh's not done trying to oppose God. In fact, I mean, the Pharaohs are just getting started in this. The end of chapter 1 Pharaoh shifts from this covert ops scheme to a public decree to murder the Hebrew boys. And by the way, I should say, I'm being somewhat matter of fact in discussing things like slavery and infanticide. Let's not miss that These are atrocious. These are abominable acts that Pharaoh was attempting to enact in Egypt. These were terrible sins against God's people and against God. And this was part of why God judges Egypt later. Yet, and let's not miss this, even these terrible decrees, these wicked decrees, were something God was using for God's own good purposes. These purposes involved a certain man named Moses. Speaking of Moses, let's meet the lad. Look at Exodus chapter 2. Exodus 2, verses 1 to 10, see the account of Moses' birth. Let's read it. It says, now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket and covered it over with tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile and she saw the basket among their beads sent her maid and she brought it to her when she opened it she saw the child and behold the boy was crying and she had pity on it and said this is one of the Hebrew's children then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you Pharaoh's daughter said to her go ahead so the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give him I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, and said, Because I drew him out of the water. All right, let's make some observations on this somewhat famous passage. Remember, at this time, we're in phase three of Pharaoh's plan to deal with Israel. He's trying to weaken the people of Israel by commanding his people to throw the infant Hebrew boys into the Nile River, kill them by drowning. But it so happens, a certain man and a certain woman from the house of Levi, they marry and have a son. Now, it's interesting, we don't get the names of his parents here, but we do later. Exodus 6, what are the names of Moses' parents? If you don't know it already, you don't have to turn there. It's uh, Amram and Jochebed. Amram's his father, Jochebed's his mother. But Moses doesn't want to focus on the names just yet. He just kind of wants to just see, see them as a, as a regular man and wife from House of Levi. Now, these parents, they do not obey the command to destroy their baby boy. And why don't they? Interesting, it says, because they saw that he was beautiful. That's that's an interesting response. Was Moses a particularly beautiful baby? Maybe. Or it may just be that this is the way any parent would feel toward his or her own child. As an image bearer of God and as their own image bearer, he's beautiful. Though it's not mentioned here, Hebrews 11.23 gives us a little bit of extra information. writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11.23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. So they say, or the writer of Hebrews says, this was an act of faith. The parents were believing Yahweh in their decision not to kill or to abandon their son. So they hide baby Moses or whatever he was called for those that beginning part of his life. They hide him for three months. But as the baby grows, they can no longer hide him. And so they decide to make an ark for him. That's the term actually behind the word basket in our passage. It's the word tebah in Hebrew. It's the same one used for Noah's ark. They make an ark, cover it with pitch, and they put Moses into the Nile. Then Moses' sister, who we later learn is named Miriam. She stands at a distance to see what would happen to her brother. And what obstacles does the text say that Moses encounters as he floats down the Nile? Well, none, as far as we know. There are no crocodiles, no raging rapids. Though movies may depict something different. In fact, the basket is said in verse 3 to be set among the reeds. And that's probably meaning that this basket is not moving very much at all. I mean, this is a slow part of the river. But it just so happens. What do you know? Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe in the Nile at this moment, at this place. And her attendant maids are walking along the Nile. And Pharaoh's daughter notices this little ark. She calls one of her maids to bring it to her. What does Pharaoh's daughter notice when she opens the ark? There's a boy inside. and He's crying. How does she respond? She has pity on him. She has compassion on him. Now, noticing this response, Moses' sister offers to find a Hebrew nurse for Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter accepts, and Miriam probably goes and gets Moses' real mother. Pharaoh's daughter agrees to pay Jochebed to nurse and raise Moses. Moses grows a little more. Jochebed brings him to the princess, and then the boy is named Moses, which means drawn out from. Hence the explanation of our passage. By the way, Moses is an Egyptian name which makes sense. He's named by Pharaoh's daughter. And you actually see the name Moses as part of the other, as part of names of some Pharaohs and other Egyptians. So, this great man of Israel is actually as an Egyptian name. Let's move to interpretation again. Why does Moses' mother decide to put Moses in this ark in the Nile? Uh, we don't really know. <laughs> it's kind of an odd choice as a parent, right? I mean, they can't hide him anymore. Perhaps it was done in hope that God would provide something miraculous. After all, their hiding him for three months was by faith, so this decision likely also was born out of faith. Additionally, perhaps Moses' mother knew that Pharaoh's daughter was coming down to a certain section of the Nile to bathe, so Jochebed plants Moses intentionally in the princess's path in hope that Pharaoh's daughter will have pity on this Hebrew baby and let him live. Whatever the reason, God again uses this choice and uses Moses' parents' faith to not only let Moses survive, but to plant Moses in Pharaoh's own household. Which leads us to a second question. Why does Pharaoh's daughter decide to take Moses as her own son. Again, we can't say for sure, but we can have a little bit of an educated guess. It may be that this daughter was Sobek Neferu, or one of the other childless princesses of Egyptian history. So she, having no child, and needing perhaps an heir to the throne, saw Moses as a gift from the gods. Moses might be a gift from the god of fertility, the god of the Nile, whose name was Happy. That's probably why Pharaoh's daughter was bathing in the first place. It wasn't just that she was trying to get clean. This was probably an act of worship to the god of the Nile. This was a fertility ritual. And so she's doing this ritual, and a baby appears. Maybe this is a gift from Happy. The text does say, however, that Pharaoh's daughter recognizes this is one of the Hebrew children. So maybe it was difficult for her to interpret this circumstance as being divinely wrought by an Egyptian god. But then again, maybe not. She said, this is what the god gave a Hebrew kid, so I'll just go with that. But notice the text does say god, or notice the text says that she had pity. Where did this pity come from? Ultimately, it was from God. God caused her to have compassion on this boy, perhaps drawing on her natural maternal instinct. So she takes him as her own son. Ultimately, we have to say what happens is no coincidence. This is God guiding Pharaoh's daughter to do the unexpected, to adopt a Hebrew boy as her own child, and really as a potential heir or the heir to the throne of Pharaoh. And talk about irony. Pharaoh has commanded the Egyptians to kill Hebrew boys when they find them, and his own daughter saves a Hebrew boy and makes him a prince of Egypt. God is trying to emphasize something about his control. God is moving people and circumstances to accomplish his good plans and fulfill his promises to Israel. And this is a great arrangement for Moses' family. Not only does Moses live, but the parents they get more time raising their kid even get paid for it. And Jochebed may have even sensed that her son would one day be in the perfect position to deliver the Hebrews. Out of their cruel bondage. Now before we look at our next next passage, do note that Moses is saved, but not necessarily all the Hebrew boys. It may be that many Egyptians did take Hebrew boys when they found them, and they did throw them into the Nile, did kill them. And this is just another one of the great injustices that Pharaoh and, by extension, the people who obeyed Pharaoh committed against the people of Israel. We don't know how widespread that was. We know that God is still protecting his people, but it's likely that some Hebrew boys were killed. But God protected Moses. He had a plan what he was going to do with Moses. But first, things go a little bit differently than maybe what we or Jacob would have expected. Look at verses 11 to 15 in chapter 2. So starting in verse 11, it says, now it came about in those days when Moses had grown up and he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that and when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. He went out the next day and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? But he said, who made you a prince or a judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and said, Surely the matter has become known. When Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. All right, just a few more quick observations on this last passage. There we go. So Moses grows up grows up to be about 40 years old. Details not given here, but Stephen comments on Moses' birth in Acts 7, and he notes that Moses is about 40 when these things take place. Moses has been raised in royalty. He's enjoyed all the pleasures and education of the people of Egypt. Moses decides, however, that he wants to get more acquainted with the hard lives of the Hebrews. While doing so, Moses encounters an Egyptian beating a Hebrew. Now, you may notice a certain word is repeated between verses 11 and 12. Goes out to look on his brethren. And he sees one of his, uh, or actually all of this is in verse 11. He sees one of his brethren being beaten. That's a key term. Because he's been raised as an Egyptian. So when he sees this beating, he just takes a look around, sees that there's no one there. So he strikes down the Egyptian. That means he kills him. Moses kills this Egyptian, and he hides the Egyptian's body in the sand. The very next day, Moses goes to break up a fight between two Hebrews. Notice one of them's response in verse 14. He says, who made you a prince or a judge over us? What does this response communicate? The idea of Moses being a leader and deliverer. They accept that? Now they reject him. at least this man does. Who made you? Harley? And this Hebrew also mentioned Moses' day-old murder. Now, apparently this man, who's walking responding to Moses, he avoided being killed at birth, so apparently a lot of Hebrew boys did survive. I'm sure, a lot of Egyptians refused to carry out Pharaoh's command. This man responds to Moses this way. And this is a big realization to Moses because he realizes that the word on what he did to that Egyptian is out. He knows he needs to flee if he's going to avoid punishment from Pharaoh. And Pharaoh indeed tries to kill Moses, but Moses is able to escape. Moses successfully leaves Egypt and goes to the land of Midian. If you're wondering where Midian is, think of the Middle East, the southwest coast, uh, across from the coast of Egypt. That's probably where Midian was. And that's where Moses goes. Now, we'll pick up more with Moses next time, but that's where we leave him today. Now, let's ask a few more questions of interpretation. First, why does Moses kill the Egyptian? You may say, isn't it obvious? Well, let's just fully tease it out. Why did he do it? That's right. So he is, as you say, uh, Mark, taking matters into his own hands, trying to execute justice. It's not entirely clear whether he kills the Egyptian after the beating had finished or while it was taking place. It does say he saw no one around. So maybe the, the Israelite who had been beaten was no longer there. So then this would be a matter of vengeance, or you could even say, or what Moses probably thought, justice. And he kills this Egyptian. Right, so Acts chapter seven, mm-hmm, Acts chapter seven, Stephen's speech. He's making a parallel between Moses and Christ. How Moses is a deliverer, trying to execute vengeance and defend the oppressed, and um, just in a similar way, he Moses was rejected. So the Sanhedrin and the people of Israel reject Christ. That's part of uh, Stephen's point there, which is a very positive take on what Moses does here, and we'll say more about that in just a second. But anyways, notice that he's he's trying to defend and avenge the people of Israel which tells you something about Moses' attitude toward the Hebrews. He does not see them as a people, but his people. They are his brethren, and he wants to protect and deliver them. Now, this is a righteous attitude. This is a, this is a, um, a fundamental turn that is very important in Moses, but it leads to what is essentially murder what the Egyptian was doing was wrong to beat, to oppress this Israelite and Pharaoh was wrong for allowing this to happen, inaugurating this kind of system in Egypt. But this did not give Moses the right to murder this Egyptian. Surely as a prince of Egypt, Moses could have done something in this situation besides kill. And does not God seriously Deal with murderers and those who kill? Genesis chapter 9, those who shed blood, God says, their blood will be shed. And I don't think we can say, oh, Moses is just acting as an agent of government, uh, inaugurating justice in Egypt. According to the laws of Egypt, this this was allowable. Of course, it was wrong before God, but that did not, beating someone does not justify murder. Still, this moment of killing was very significant in the life of Moses, because on what is Moses turning his back? His, or go ahead, yeah. Uh, yeah, his home in where? That's right, his home in Pharaoh's household. He says, I'm not going to identify with Pharaoh's household anymore. I identify with my ethnic heritage, with the people of the Hebrews. He's turning his back on Egypt. And this is why in Hebrews, Moses is remarked about in this way. Hebrews 11 verses 24 to 26, it says, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches, And the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. So despite this murder, there's something very righteous and worthy to be imitated in Moses here. He's turning his back on that sinful life and culture that is in Egypt. And he's saying, I'm going with the people of God. Even if it means suffering, I'm going with God, because I know that is the right place, and I know that there's an ultimate reward there with God. And I think that's part of why Stephen cites Moses positively when he refers to this killing. Now, again, I don't I don't think Stephen is saying that Moses was justified necessarily, but there was something fundamentally right about what Moses was doing. Now, let's consider all the passages we've looked at today, those four different passages. What do you notice has been a theme, or what are some themes consistent between these different passages we've looked at? What's one of them? Yeah, go ahead. Or or sorry, that's not a hand. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a good good theme or a good That's right. Uh, even among righteous, we have some people who are not necessarily doing everything they should have, and yet God was using it. And I think we can even extend that further. God was using the clearly unrighteous actions of Pharaoh and the people of Egypt and was using those as well. In fact, here's like another point. There's a, there's a clear frustration of Pharaoh's purposes and evil's purposes. Like Pharaoh's like, all right, we're gonna do this. And it's gonna have this result. Nope, God's not gonna let that happen. All right, we're gonna do this and have this result. Nope, God checks you again. And this is gonna be a pattern throughout the book of Exodus. Pharaoh's gonna, Pharaoh's gonna keep on getting frustrated not just this pharaoh, but other pharaohs. I'm gonna keep on being frustrated by Yahweh, and this is significant because remember the people of Egypt they saw pharaoh as a god king. He's one of the gods of Egypt, but God's gonna show again and again. Pharaoh doesn't have power. I have power. Pharaoh tries to do things. I'm gonna frustrate those because I'm the king. And we see that in each one of these passages. We see God is sovereign. We see God is keeping His promises. We see God is protecting his people, even while he allows evil to go to a certain extent. I know there's a passage of scripture that talks about God putting a check on the oceans. He says, you can come this far and no further. It's the same way with evil. God says, all right, Egypt, Pharaoh, I'm gonna let you do a certain amount of evil to my people, but there's a limit, this far and no further. It's the same thing that God even does with Satan, right? In The book of Job, he says, you can do this to Job, but you're not allowed to kill him or you're not allowed to touch his body until I say so. This is because God is King. Yahweh is sovereign. And I think this is one of the main points that we want to take away from today's class. Yahweh is the true King. And if you honor and obey King Yahweh, remember Jesus is also Yahweh. He identifies himself as that in the New Testament. If you honor and obey King Yahweh, you May suffer. In fact, you will suffer. But you will also be blessed in the end when you see God's good purposes and promises come to pass. That's gonna be true for the people of Israel, and it's true for you as well, if you will follow King Yahweh. But if you oppose and repudiate King Yahweh, like Pharaoh attempts to do, you may get away with evil in the short term, or what appears to be you getting away with getting away with evil in the short term. You can be proud, you can be stubborn. For a time, but God will not allow you to do any more than what He has determined will ultimately accomplish His good purpose. And in the end, God will call you to account. He will bring you to judgment. That's why you can't say, Oh, well, if God's good purposes, then I'll just sin, do whatever I want, and God will make something good out of it. Well, God will make something good out of it, but He's gonna call you to account. He's gonna say you did evil and I'm going to punish you for it, because God is a just God. So how do you respond? Do you honor King Yahweh or do you try to stay your own king? Well, as we're running out of our time here today, let me just suggest to you a few other applications, a few more ways of application. Hopefully you're seeing a number of applications already based on what we've looked at. But here are just three more that I would like you to focus on. Number one, if you're suffering, I know that many of you are in different ways, or you will be. This is a cursed world where we counter suffering, people who oppose God, oppose us, or just the fallenness of the world. If you're suffering, wait on God. God brought the people of Israel into this time of suffering in Egypt, but he had a good purpose in it. And this is what we've been seeing, isn't it? God will yet do something good. He will provide for you. During that time of suffering, keep entrusting yourself to the Lord. Do not grow weary in doing what is right, as the New Testament says. God is the rewarder of those who seek him. Wait on the Lord. The righteous one will live by faith, Habakkuk says. Wait for God's deliverance. It will come, right time, and in the right way. If you're pressured by man to sin, like the midwives were in this passage, obey God instead. Now again, we have that whole discussion about lying, but let's not forget the good thing that they did is they fundamentally disobeyed their uh, the, the ruler of their land, and this was right. And this is the same thing the apostles do. When they're commanded by their ruling body, the Sanhedrin, don't preach anymore about Jesus. They say, we got to obey God rather than man. We as Christians do submit to government, but when our government... Or other governments say things that contradict the scriptures, we do not go along with them. We are not to do so. We obey God rather than man. And that's probably going to become an increasing issue in our country. The kind of weird legislation that characterizes our age. I mean, every time I read the news, I'm just saying, is this really reality? You know, the things about homosexuality and transgenderism and other kinds of laws, it's wacky. And they're going to try to enforce this on Christians more and more, but if they're calling us to disobey God, we got to say, no, we obey God rather than man. And we see that God rewarded the midwives for doing so, and he will ultimately reward us. It may bring suffering, but ultimately we will be rewarded because because our God is good. Then finally, if you're opposing God, this passage calls you to repent. If you're being stubborn in sin in your life, if you're saying, no, I want to do what I want, then you need to repent now. Because look at how God frustrates Pharaoh. And he's going to keep on doing that. And you know what? He'll do the same thing in your life. He may let you get away with it for a little while, but ultimately God's going God's to gonna frustrate you. God is opposed to the proud, the Bible says, but he gives grace to the humble. So, Turn now. Give up that way of thinking. Give up that way of acting. Humble yourself before the Lord. And what does he say? He will exalt you. Don't remain in sin. Those attitudes in your heart, you say, I want things my way. Give that up. The Lord knows how to take care of you. And trust yourself to God. Kiss the son now so that he does not become angry and you perish in the way, as Psalm 2 says. Don't try to oppose King Yahweh. Submit to King Yahweh. And he will lift you up. Well, that's it for today's lesson. We've seen that God protects his people. He's raising up a chosen deliverer. But salvation has not yet come to Israel. People are still crying out to God due to their suffering in Egypt. Moses now is far away from Egypt. When's God's deliverance going to come? When is he going to show that prophecy to Abraham to be fulfilled? That people will be delivered out of Egypt. Well, it is coming. And next week, we'll see how God appears to Moses in the wilderness, and he commissions Moses to go back, confront Pharaoh, and lead Israel out from the land. I look forward to talking about that with you next time. Let's close prayer. Lord, it is true what the scriptures say. You are the only Savior. You're in total control. No one will be saved out of any situation or saved from any kind of evil unless you ordain it. And you do ordain it for your people at the proper time. So God, we can entrust ourselves to you. Lord, I pray for the people at Calvary, for your people who listen to this lesson today, that their minds would be transformed. That they'd they'd be reset, changed in their thinking. So that they do not rely on sin or the wisdom of the world, but they rely on you. Say, I can trust my God. Even when things are hard, even when it looks like no deliverance is coming. I know my God is good. And he is working this out. Evil may get its time in the sun, but you will ultimately, God, are a good and just God. You will not allow evil to get away with itself. We are not to take sinful vengeance, but God, you will bring vengeance at the proper time. So we can entrust ourselves to you. I pray that the people of Calvary would do that. I pray, God, that they would glory in you as the Savior, as the covenant-keeping God today, as they continue to worship at Calvary. In Jesus' name, amen.